my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for the apple seed, an hour in which we bring you stories of all sorts for you and your family. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family stories, and more. And we always hope that the stories we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people you love. And when people gather to tell stories, especially when the stories spark conversation that leaves you excited to be better, to engage with the world in a more energized and active and understanding way, well, that's when storytelling becomes power. We got some great stories for you today. Down at the heart of it, today's stories are all about creating a space of understanding and even cooperation between people who are different from each other, but who need each other. It's kind of a timely thing to think about in these days when a lot of people look on folks who are different from them as, well, as the enemy. And we've got an hour today filled with stories about that kind of thing, or rather about overcoming that kind of thing. The first story we'll bring you today was recorded live in the Appleseed studio and told for you by the wonderful storyteller and mime, Motoko. Excuse me. I was surprised to hear myself say, loudly and perhaps a little rudely, I am Japanese, but I want to hear your war stories. That's Motoko. And the story is about a time when Motoko, along with a group of professional storytellers, went on a trip to China. And waiting for her there was an experience with a Chinese storyteller that she may not have been quite prepared for. And you'll see what happens when people from different sides of a divide approach each other with kindness and courage. And you'll also hear an old fairy tale today called The Day Boy and the Night Girl. It's a story about a boy and a girl who are very, very different from each other, but who wind up having to work together to free themselves from the clutches of an evil witch. And we assembled a cast of terrific actors to present the story before our studio audience. Who are you? I'm Nycteris. You are a creature of the darkness and love the night. I may be a creature of the darkness, but I do not love the night. I love the day with all my heart. And she gestured toward the moon. The Day Boy and the Night Girl is a cool story written by an influential maker of fairy tales. If you've ever read anything by J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or Neil Gaiman or any of a whole panorama of famous and beloved authors, you've read stuff that was influenced by George MacDonald. And that's coming up later in the hour, and we're excited to bring it to you. And you'll hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal, too, about a snowy night and a treacherous drive. It might bring back a memory for you of having having to work together with someone who is different from you, but who you need, and who needs you, too. But first, how about this story from Motoko? Motoko tells stories from Japan and from China, and a lot of the time they're traditional stories, stories that have been around for longer than you or your parents or your grandparents. But this story isn't one of those. It's a personal story from a meaningful experience that Motoko herself had as part of a storytelling trip to China. And there's a lot you'll like about this story. You'll like hearing about the storytelling work set up for Motoko and her storytelling colleagues in Chinese communities. And you'll like hearing about some of the people she meets. Her journey into a foreign land will remind you of times when you might have felt far from home in a strange place. But at the heart of the story is an experience with a Chinese storyteller who was on the other side of a national and cultural divide from Motoko. Between them stood a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of cruelty and conflict. And what happens when two people on opposite sides of such a divide get in the same room? Well, you'll find out at least what happens to Motoko in this story called It Takes Two. It was recorded live in the Appleseed studio before our terrific studio audience. And let's get into it, shall we? Thank you. Thank you so much. Henry David Thoreau said, It takes two to speak the truth, one to speak it and the other to hear. Or maybe he said, the other to listen. 
In the fall of 2006, my partner Eshu and I traveled to China as a part of this storytellers group tour. Forty American storytellers and I, led by Nancy Wan and Robert Kikuchi Ngoho of Ethnotech, uh, called ourselves the Nuwa Delegation of Cultural Exchange, named after a Chinese creation goddess. At the heart of our trip was a four-day visit to a small rural village called Gansuen, about three-hour bumpy bus ride south from the capital city of Beijing. When we got off the big bus in that dusty, dry heat, we were greeted by a cacophony, energetic village elders beating drums, enthusiastic schoolchildren shouting welcome songs. Curious young mothers, each holding a little baby. Those babies were wearing those cotton pants, conveniently split at the crotch for very practical purposes, an eco-friendly alternative to diapers. <laughs> they all followed us as we made our way to the village elementary school. We passed by modest homes enclosed by traditional high brick walls. Chickens and goats crossed the unpaved streets. The school building consisted of only three rooms of bare concrete floor and uh, beat-up furniture. The About 60 students, uh, uh, wide-eyed and brimming with curiosity, received us enthusiastically and the gifts we brought. Picture books, notebooks, pencils, markers, and crayons. The village of elders were making a plan to take us to the village shrine so we could greet uh, their ancestral spirits. Now, what made this ordinary-looking rural village very special was its people. Every one of them was a storyteller. Situated on a major trade route going both from east to west and north to south, Gansuen once was a thriving trading post for merchants and farmers, accumulating and passing on thousands of stories over six centuries. Now, with a population of just 1,200, Gansuen was not on any map that we could find. The village housed the elementary school and a small brick-making factory and several small cotton fields. All the young people had to must move away to a nearby city to find work. Yet, in recent years, the local government had recognized the cultural value of their storytelling tradition, and they encouraged the village to keep it going by teaching all the children in the school storytelling. They would host storytelling contests among the villagers and also against the neighboring villages on a regular basis. They recognized and honored master storytellers and junior masters. They had welcomed several international delegations such as ours. Stories to them were like air. You breathe them in and you breathe them out. So our plan was to divide ourselves into small groups and visit half a dozen designated master storytellers' homes. We had a rotating schedule uh, uh, amongst us. So today, Group A would visit Mr. Gao's and Mrs. Xi's homes, and tomorrow, Group B would visit those homes while Group A would visit somebody else's homes. So we will uh, come together, meet the master storytellers and their families, friends and neighbors, and swap stories and learn from each other. Except, of course, there was a snag. Um, we found out uh, pretty quickly that many villagers, especially the elders, only spoke their traditional local dialect. We had brought our own translators we hired in Beijing, young, fashion-conscious Chinese college graduates who spoke excellent English. But they threw their hands up in the air and declared they had no idea what the villagers were saying. So we had to scramble around trying to find another set of translators, people who could speak Mandarin and the local dialect.
So our story swap went like this. The Chinese master storyteller will tell a story. The local translator repeated it in Mandarin. Then our Beijing translator would put it in English. When uh, one of us, the American storytellers, told the story, the same process was repeated in reverse. We all worked really hard. The local translator who was helping my group was a diminutive, well-dressed lady in her 50s. Her name was Mrs. Ma. Now, Mrs. Ma, her name means horse. You see, Chinese language is tonal. You might have heard of this. It's very difficult. It's almost like music. So a simple word like ma, M-A, you can pronounce it in many ways. You can say ma, like that, and that means mother. Or you can say ma, and that means linen. Or you can say ma, and that means horse. Or you can say ma, which means to yell at someone. Or you can just say ma, which means a question mark, like ni hao ma, that means how are you, okay? So if you're not careful, you end up calling your mother horse, or your horse mom. <laughs> so Mrs. Ma was a librarian in a nearby city, and she did not speak any English. So I tried on my rudimentary Mandarin on her that I picked up in my college days. I could say, 我是日本人, I am Japanese. I could say, 我在住美国, I live in the United States. 我很喜欢中国的故事, I love Chinese stories. Now, that was all I could really say. And I had a really difficult time understanding what she was saying. But Mrs. Ma was very patient with my extremely limited vocabulary, and she acted even a little protective of me. I would call her Lao Tai Tai, which meant madam. So every day we would spend uh, several hours in the village listening to folk tales. Most of them funny, some were hilarious, uh, some of them were very earthly and scatological, and others somewhat obscure. Then we would go back to a hotel in a nearby city for dinner. But our second night there, some of my American tour mates told me that their group had visited this home of a master teller named Mr. Jin, who told war stories. They said Mr. Jin had been a prisoner of war, captured and tortured by Japanese army during World War II. In fact, the village of Gansuen itself was nearly decimated by the Japanese, they said. Now, of course, I knew about the invasion of China by the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II and the brutal battles that had taken place. I had learned about them in my high school history class. But my knowledge was neither deep nor personal. My family never talked about the war much. All I knew was that my mother's father was killed during the American bombing of Osaka, and both my parents, as children, nearly starved to death during and after the war. So when I heard about Mr. Jin, the feelings I had were all mixed up. Sadness, apprehension, guilt, curiosity embarrassment. Our rotating schedule said that my group was to visit Mr. Jin's home on our last day at the village. So my group, led by Mrs. Ma and our Beijing translator who called himself Kevin, went through the traditional stone gate. We were led through an attractive small courtyard into their living quarters, which basically consisted of two parts, a very tiny kitchen and a large, spacious bedroom, which also served as the living room. Several villagers were already there waiting for us, sitting on the edge of the big double bed. They gave us chairs to sit around the bed. So I looked for a man in a military uniform, but I did not see one. 
Then I noticed a man with gray hair and a well-tanned face, short and stocky. He was wearing a beige sweater that reminded me of Mr. Rogers. He was chatting with an old lady sitting next to him. Now, he was the only person in the room who looked older than my father, so I figured he was Mr. Jin. So I sat in a corner of the room, not quite sure what to expect. Today, I am going to tell you a true story that really happened. Mr. Jin started solemnly as we all settled down. Mrs. Ma and Kevin translated. Mr. Jin looked around the room and our eyes met. Then Mr. Jin hesitated and asked something to Mrs. Ma. Mrs. Ma looked in my direction and answered quickly. Mr. Jin nodded and cleared his throat. <clears throat> Actually, today I am going to tell you a different story, an old folktale. Mrs. Ma nodded and smiled approvingly. Then I realized what was going on. Mrs. Ma had told Mr. Jin that I was from Japan, and Mr. Jin decided not to tell his war story, perhaps in order to spare my feelings? Excuse me, I was surprised to hear myself say, loudly and perhaps a little rudely. I am Japanese, but I want to hear your war stories. Please don't switch for me. Mr. Jin, Mrs. Ma, and even Kevin looked very surprised, but I could not back down now. Please, I said a little desperately, my cheeks burning hot. All right, Mr. Jin said finally. And in his quiet, unceremonious manner, he told us a very short story, which went like this. When I was a young man, the enemies came to this village. My friend and I hid in our cabbage patch. The enemies came after us. One enemy found my friend hiding under a big cabbage leaf. He tried to pull my friend out, and my friend bit his hand. The enemy screamed and hit my friend with his gun. I jumped out to save my friend, and we were both captured. Then they run my friend over with a truck. Abruptly, he ended. After a moment, it was clear that he was not going to say anything else, so we politely applauded. Mr. Jin then went outside, and the gathering broke into clusters of small conversations. Kevin was trying to organize us into a group photo shoot. So I tore a blank page uh, from my notebook and consulting my pocket dictionary, quickly wrote, thank you for your story. War is wrong. I wish for us to be friends. Of course, in my atrocious Chinese, it may have read, thank you story. Fighting is incorrect. I want friends for us. <laughs> I signed my name in Chinese symbols. I went outside and found Mr. Jin smoking a cigarette in the courtyard. So I handed him my note. He read it, and a broad smile came over his face. He said, Suzu, pronouncing my name in Chinese. So I nodded. Then he started talking rapidly in an excited manner, gesturing wildly, and I had no idea what he was saying. But just in time, Mrs. Ma came to my rescue. She told him, well, I assume she told him that I only knew a dozen words in Mandarin and could not be expected to converse like a normal human being. <laughs> Mr. Jin seemed to understand. Then he did something completely unexpected. He went, Ich ni san shi. Ich ni san shi, as if he was marching, counting in Japanese. In a flash of insight, I understood what he was saying. He was sharing the only four words of Japanese that he knew, which was how to count from one to four. And he had learned it in the prison camp as the Japanese soldiers made him march from one place to another. 
Mr. Jim was grinning ear to ear, quite pleased that we finally found the four words that we both understood. We looked at each other and knew that there was so much more that we wanted to say to each other. We needed to say, but there were simply no words for it. So I did the only thing I could do. I bowed deeply, Japanese style, to him. You see, Chinese people do not bow. They shake hands just like Americans. As I came up, Mr. Jin took both my hands and shook them firmly, roaring with hearty laughter. Mrs. Ma, quite relieved, looked at us from one to the other, and she said something, and even I understood what she was saying. She was saying, Hang hao, zheng hao, very good, truly good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It Takes Two, a story told for you by the wonderful storyteller and mime, Motoko. She joined us in the Appleseed studio along with her partner, the storyteller and musician, Ishu Bumpus, for a couple of hours of terrific stories. We recorded all of it, and we can't wait to bring you more from Motoko and from Ishu, too. Of course, you can find some of the stories we captured in previous episodes of The Appleseed. Look for a story called The Golden Eye of the Fighting Cricket, for example, in Season 2, Episode 11 of the show. Easy to find. You can find it at BYURadio.org or on the BYU. BYU Radio app, or of course by subscribing to the podcast. Now, there's a lot for me to love about the story we just heard. I love, for example, how careful the storyteller, Mr. Jin, is when he finds out that a person from Japan, and here I'm talking about Motoko, is in his audience. He begins to tell different stories rather than the war stories he had planned on telling, out of consideration for Motoko's feelings, the wartime feelings that might exist between someone from Japan and someone from China. And I'll tell you, I love a character in a story who does things out of consideration for the feelings of others. Has anyone ever done something for you out of consideration for your feelings? Have you ever done anything for someone else out of consideration for theirs? And of course, I love Motoko's response to Mr. Jin. No, she says, I know I'm Japanese, but I want to hear your war stories. That response is special, too. For someone like Motoko to say, tell me your story, the real story. I want to hear it. That's a special thing. And then, of course, it's special, too, that she listens. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Motoko's story in just a moment. In fact, Heather and Brian are going to join me around the desk for a little talk back. That and an entry in the Radio Family Journal and an old fairy tale by George MacDonald performed live in the Appleseed Studio by our terrific little band of radio actors. It's all coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. <laughs> our pleasure to hear the wonderful storyteller Motoko recorded live in the Appleseed studio with a story called It Takes Two. And to unpack that story, I'm thrilled to be joined around the desk by uh, Dr. Heather Bigley, Dr. Brian Tanner, our producers. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hey, great to be here. <laughs> Before the mics went hot, I heard Brian singing a little bit. <laughs> it takes two. <laughs> Wait, are we going to have to... Go out and license the song. Maybe I, maybe I should not, you know. <laughs> well, where does a story like It Takes... The, the, the nice thing, one of the cool things about Motoko telling this story, It Takes Two, is it's a story about her storytelling life. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Where does a story like this take you? You know, I was thinking about uh, how she was in China, and she is a native Japanese speaker, yeah. you know, and thinking they use so many of the same characters. They're adjacent to each other in the world, but they're still just unable to communicate with each other. And it reminded me very literally of an experience I had when I went to um, speak at a conference down in Puebla, Mexico. Hmm. And I went into Mexico thinking like, well, I speak Portuguese. I'm going to do fine. (laughs) Those languages are really close to each other, you know? And so um, I, you know, I get to the airport, I get a taxi and I'm just, I'm just like, I'll just speak Portuguese. They'll get it, you know? (laughs) And they just gave me these blank stares 
And I think that Portuguese is a little bit funkier than Spanish. Like they come from the same root. So it's like when someone speaks Spanish to me, it just sounds like very plain Portuguese, you know, so I can understand it pretty well, but they just like clearly did not understand <laughs> anything I was trying to say. So I was like, okay, this isn't going to be as as easy as I thought, you know? <laughs> and I think that's what Motoko found as well when she was in in China. Sure, like, sure. This is going to take way more levels of translation and in people in the middle to make this happen. Right, right. Well, yeah, and all the levels of translation, it's not just from Japanese to Mandarin. It's from this local dialect to Mandarin yeah. to English to, you know. Yeah. And then her... Her making those efforts at the end of the story, right, where she writes this little note to the survivor of what sounds like uh, what we call the Rape of Nanking, right? Like, yeah. when they're talking about the Japanese invasion of China. Yeah. Um, taking the effort to write in Chinese characters and hand this note to him. And then him, you know, the it takes two, him responding yeah. uh, with joy. I know yeah. I know some Japanese. <laughs> I learned it in my prison camp experience. I mean, if you think of the irony of that, the poignancy of that, let me let me repeat these numbers that I know. Yeah. And that's how we're gonna make a connection. Um and then that deep, deep bow that she gives, right? Mm, yeah. Which is sort of this um this, you know, deep reverence. Of apology. Uh, I was taken, I don't have a personal experience with this, but I was taken to stories that I know about the Japanese government making apologies to different countries, Hmm. one of them being the U.S. and U.S. prisoners of Japanese internment camps from Hmm. World War II, which they did, I believe, in the early 90s, like literally, you know, 50 years later, um, and how important that was to those former prisoners that the Japanese government would come forward and say, we deeply regret uh, what you suffered and Mm. how important that is in our own lives for someone to come forward and say, I am sorry for what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, as you were talking about Portuguese and Spanish, Brian, I was thinking about, I speak a little Spanish and I had, I, I was remembering a conversation with a Portuguese speaker and we we were successful in communicating with one another, but it came at, at great effort, right? Mm-hmm. We we were in a room alone together. I had to listen to every word and sort of uh, ask for further explanation a lot, and they had to do the same to me. It's kind of the experience that proves the rule that you were talking about, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes we just charge in demanding to be understood. Yeah. And, and understanding can be achieved but only with great effort yeah. and attention. And and that's sort of what the, the Motoko story is about too, right? The kind of care that communication uh, requires. Yeah, and we talked about the language needing translation, but uh, Heather, something you touched on that made me think like, she was saying, I had learned about what had happened during the war in high school, but she'd learned it a way that was taught to her by Japanese teachers in the Japanese country, whereas this person had lived through it. So even though they're talking about the same event, they had such a different understanding about it, and they had to kind of translate and kind of uh, get to the heart of what the other person was thinking and feeling about this to come to a mutual place. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but think that Motoko's experience as a storyteller assisted her in the communication efforts that she makes, you know, Mm People who are storytellers for a living sort of wear that as a badge of honor. You know, this notion of I, 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 I am a professional uh, listener. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm out. I'm out to understand you yeah. by hearing your story. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and she does. You know. Well, the story from Motoko did bring to mind a memory for me that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. When my oldest son started high school, 
I figured I should learn the way to his high school, and I did. But I only learned one route. The school was actually in the next town over, and there were probably six or seven ways to get there, but I only learned one. Take a left out of my driveway, then take another left to the stop sign, then take a right about a half mile down that road, and then drive a mile or so up a long, gradual, inclined road, and then take a left and head for about a quarter mile down what was actually a pretty steep hill until you got to the high school on your left. To get home, reverse it. Starting with the right turn out of the high school parking lot, up the quarter mile, steepish climb, etc., etc. Anyway, the point is, I only knew that one way to get to my son's high school. It was never a problem. I mean, how many ways more than one does anyone need to get to the high school? Well, there was the winter night when I went to see the high school production of Phantom of the Opera. I was there because my son was on the tech crew for the show, and the show was great. And after it was over, we walked out of the high school doors, headed to the parking lot, and it was snowing like crazy. And we had driven separately, and there were four or five inches of snow on my son's car and the same amount on mine. And we spent some time with scrapers and brushes, and then, well, we hit the road, headed for home. Right turn out of the parking lot and up that quarter-mile steep climb. Only tonight, that climb was suddenly covered in slush and ice. Cars were revving their engines and climbing just a few yards of that big hill only to slide backward again or spin gracelessly off the road and onto the shoulder into the deep snow. At first, we thought we could wait until the traffic cleared a bit and then take the hill slowly in low gear, but this night was really one for the books. We weren't going anywhere. My son was ahead of me in the car he had driven, and in the glow of my headlights growing ever fainter as the snow covered them, I could see the back of his car fishtailing in the snow as he tried once more to make it up the hill. Well, I flashed my lights at him, and he got the message. We both stopped our cars. I got out of mine. Shoulders hunched against the snow, I walked to my son's driver's side window. Let's get off the road, I said. It's getting crazy out here. We'll wait it out on a side road here in the neighborhood somewhere. My son nodded. There's a turnoff just behind us, I said. My son nodded. Put on your hazard lights and we'll back up a few feet and take that road. Let's get there and we'll make a plan, I said. My son nodded and I slogged back to my car and we backed up a few feet and took the turn off. I was in front now, and in a moment, when we were well out of traffic, I pulled slowly to the shoulder. I was going to march back through the snow and talk to my son, but even as I turned to the door handle, I saw him standing right there outside my window. (laughs) It startled me a little. I rolled down the window, and he began talking. Dad, do you know this road? No, I said, but I thought we might be able to catch our breath here for a little bit and figure out how to safely get home in this storm. I don't think we're going to get up that hill. Well, I suddenly wondered if I should have learned even one more way to and from the high school. We'd figure it out, I thought. I'm the dad. I can do this. It's my job. But my son went on. Dad, I know this road, he said. This is one of the ways I take to get to school, he said. If we follow this curve for a few minutes, it'll loop us around to a stop sign, and if we turn right at the stop sign and take that road straight on until we come to another stop sign, we'll be just a few blocks from home. You'll recognize it from there. Well, I looked at my son. You want to lead, I said. Sure, Dad. He turned to go back to his car. There, in the glow of the streetlights, he didn't look like a kid anymore. He just looked like a guy, a guy who was going to get us safely home. I thought that had been my job. Suddenly, my son turned again toward me. I can show the way, he said, but I'm a little worried about sliding in this slush. I mean, you saw me on the hill, right? Well, I opened my mouth. Take it nice and slow, okay, I said. We're not in a hurry. My son nodded. And if you start to slide, even a little bit, I continued, don't slam on your brakes and hold them. You'll keep sliding. Pump them. Seems weird, but that's the way you do it on the snow and ice. Got it. Pump the brakes, he said. And then he was gone. His headlights came on behind me. 
and he pulled slowly away from the shoulder and out ahead of me, and forward we went. We followed the curve, looped around to the stop sign, turned right, drove slowly forward, and in a few minutes found ourselves safely back in our neighborhood, and then in our driveway, and then in the house. I think back on that night every time I get fooled into thinking that parenting means knowing everything and simply downloading it to one's child in time for one's child to head out into the world equipped to handle it. Information flowing in one direction from parent to child and then a kind of leaving the nest once the download is complete. But that's not the way it is all the time. I mean, there is a lot of teaching that comes with being a parent, of course, for sure, but... In that long-ago storm, as it turns out, I knew some of what to do and had to teach my son. And my son knew some of what to do and had to teach me. I would do well to remember that when it comes to getting through storms with the people in your family, there are some things that neither oneself nor one's child nor one's spouse can do alone. In the end, it takes all of us we all know stuff, and we have to help one another. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It was a pleasure to chat around the desk about uh, the story told for us by Motoko, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio, a story called It Takes Two. I've been chatting about it with Brian Tanner and Heather Bigley, our producers. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, in an episode about people who are different from one another, but who nevertheless need each other, a fairy tale called The Day Boy and the Night Girl, performed by our terrific little cast of actors live in the Appleseed studio. Let's go there, shall we? When I was a child, my father brought home a collection of stories by George MacDonald, a 19th century poet, minister, and author. George MacDonald wrote fairy tales. I had never heard of him, but plenty of people had. The authors of A Wrinkle in Time, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lord of the Rings, Peter Pan, Wizard of Oz, they were all super fans of George MacDonald. Those George MacDonald stories sat on our big living room bookshelf, on a part of the shelf that was high enough that I had to climb onto the arm of the couch to reach it. And when I dared to do that, I found a story that began like this. There was once a witch who desired to know everything. But the wiser a witch is, the harder she knocks her head against the wall when she comes to it. Her name was Watho, and she had a wolf in her mind. She cared for nothing in itself, only for knowing it. She was not naturally cruel, but the wolf had made her cruel. She was tall and graceful, with a white skin, red hair, and black eyes which had a red fire in them. She was straight and strong, but now and then would fall bent together, shudder and sit for a moment with her head turned over her shoulder, as if the wolf had got out of her mind onto her back. Yeah, that's how the story began, and it got even more sinister from there. I was hooked, and the tale grew in me as it unfolded, right at that place in my life where stories had only begun to be more to me than just fun, that place where stories had begun to mean things. And with that, we're happy to bring an adaptation of that tale to you now. Here's The Day Boy and the Night Girl from the story by George MacDonald. You've heard the beginning. What happens next unfolds something like this. For... Fairy tale reasons, Watho the witch arranged for two children to be born of separate mothers in her palace, a boy and a girl. The mothers were told their children had died in the moment they were born, and the mothers were sent away sorrowing. But it wasn't true. The children had lived. With the help of her servants, the witch raised the boy and the girl. But they never knew of each other. 
Again, for fairy tale reasons, Watho took care that the boy should never, ever know darkness. All day he basked in the full splendor of the sun, where he learned to hunt and fight and swim. And before the merest hint of dusk, he was brought into the castle to sleep in rooms ablaze with lamps and torches. Watho called him Photogen. From the root gen, which means born. And the Greek photo, which means light. The girl was raised in a much different way. The main point of her raising was that she should always live in a dark room where she should never see daylight. In fact, the girl knew no light at all except the light that came from an alabaster lamp hung like a globe from the ceiling of the room. The girl slept during the day and awoke at night. She learned to play music and to read. And no one knew of her. The witch named her Nycteris. Which is also the name of a certain kind of bat. The thing the girl loved best was the lamp that hung from the ceiling in her room. She would gaze up at it and sometimes find her face wet with tears as she gazed. Though she never looked thus at the lamp except when she was alone. Once, when she was thus alone, there came the noise of a far-off rumbling. It was an earthquake. A new sign of something beyond the chambers where she lived. In the earthquake, the beloved alabaster lamp dropped from the ceiling to the floor with a great crash. Terrified at the loss of the only light she knew and feeling through the darkness, Nycteris found the door of her rooms. It had always been closed to her, but now she found it open. For fairy tale reasons. And Nycteris was out. The girl was amazed to find herself in the silence of the nighttime castle. She began to walk through a world she could not have imagined. And then, with no one to stop her, she left the castle and went into the gardens. And there she saw the moon. It is my lamp, she said, and stood dumb with parted lips, and then in a kind of awe. No, it is not my lamp. It is the mother of all lamps. And with that, she fell on her knees and spread out her hands to the moon. On that same day, only earlier, the boy, Photogen, had for the first time outstripped his hunting party in pursuit of some swift and dangerous animal. He never found his prey, but the unthinkable had happened. Sunset had come. And as the sun went orange and then disappeared, Photogen thought the world was ending. He despaired, stumbled back to the castle, and in the dark of the gardens, fainted dead away on the grass for fear. And that is where Nycteris found him, and her thoughts raced. What's this? Another girl like myself? But what a strange-looking girl, so curiously dressed, too, and not able to move. Is she dead? Nycteris knelt on the grass and cradled Photogen's head in her lap, and that's when Photogen woke up. Who are you? I'm Nycteris. You are a creature of the darkness and love the night. I may be a creature of the darkness, but I do not love the night. I love the day with all my heart. And she gestured toward the moon, for the moon was brighter than anything Nycteris could imagine, and here in the garden, the girl thought she was in the day. How can it be? This is horrible, horrible. What is so frightful? It's so horribly dark. Dark? You should be in my room when an earthquake has killed my lamp. I do not understand. How can you call this dark? Look, look! Every other moment, Photogen would start and grasp tight hold of her as some fresh pang of fear shot into him. Come, come, dear, you must not go on this way. You must be a brave girl and- A girl? Shouted Photogen and started to his feet in wrath. Oh, no, I see. No, of course, you can't be a girl. Girls are not afraid without reason. (laughs) I understand now. It is because you are not a girl that you are so frightened. No, it is not. It is this horrible darkness that creeps into me, goes all through me, into the very marrow of my bones. That is what makes me behave this way. If only the sun would rise. The sun? What is that? And why does the word make me afraid? It is the soul, the the life, the heart, the glory of the universe. The worlds dance like motes in its beam. The heart is strong and brave in its light. Then that is not the sun? That? I know nothing about that except that it is ugly and horrible. (laughs) At best, it can be only the ghost of a dead sun. Yes, that's it. That's what makes it so frightful. No, you must be wrong there. I think the sun is the ghost of a dead moon. Is there then another big room where the sun lives in the roof? I do not know what you mean. I do not know what you mean. I do not know what you mean. And Photogen, confused and still very frightened, 
fell asleep. The girl's thoughts continued to race. What a creature. What to call it, I cannot think, for it was angry when I called it what Watho called me. Look, the great lamp grows paler and paler. Everything around me goes clearer and clearer. What could it mean? The lamp must be dying. Going out to be a sun, it must be death. All my strength is going out of me. And as the day came on and Photogen woke and lifted his head from her lap and sprang to his feet, Nycteris gave a cry, covered her face with her hands, and pressed her eyelids closed. I am so frightened. What is this? It must be death. But I don't wish to die yet. I love the old lamp. (laughs) This is terrible. I want to hide. What is the matter with you? I live under the pale lamp and I die under the bright one. Let us say that in this conversation, Nycteris came to know what you know already, that Photogen was strong during the day, but could not abide the night. And Photogen came to know that Nycteris could weather any nighttime, but could not so much as open her eyes during the day. Somehow, they survived the conversation, (laughs) and in time made it back to their rooms in the castle. But having gone each one out of their own world, even for a moment, and survived, each had thoughts of only one thing— Escape from Watho. And one dusk, in the hour when Nycteris grew strong and Photogen faded, they met again and shared those thoughts of escape with each other. And Photogen said, a little foolishly, Yes, and we shall fly the moment the sun comes back. (laughs) We must not wait for the morning, for then I shall not be able to move, and what would you do the next night? Besides... Watho sees best in the daytime. Indeed, you must come now, Photogen, you must. I cannot, I dare not. I cannot so much as move in the nighttime. I shall be with you. I will take care of you till your dreadful sun comes. And then you can take care of me. But you don't know what mad animals there are away there towards the south. They have huge green eyes and they would eat you up like a bit of celery. Said Photogen the hunter. (laughs) I can keep out of the way of them all. I see and scent them, too, long before they are near me, long before they can see or scent me. She took him by the hand. He yielded and rose, and she led him away. But his steps were feeble, and as the night went on, he seemed more and more ready to sink. Oh, dear, I am so tired and so frightened. Lean on me. Take a a few steps more. Every step away from the castle is clear gain. Lean harder on me. I am quite strong now and well. So they went on. The piercing night eyes of Nycteris descried not a few pairs of green ones gleaming like holes in the darkness, and many a round one she made to keep far out of their way. But she never said to Photogen she saw them. Carefully she kept him off of uneven places and on the softest and smoothest of grass, talking to him gently all the way as they went. When the morning began to come, he began to grow better, but was dreadfully tired with walking instead of sleeping. Nycteris, too, what with supporting him, what with growing fear of the light which was beginning to ooze out of the east, was very tired. At length, both equally exhausted, they stopped, each supported only by the leaning weakness of the other, each ready to fall if the other should move. But while the one grew weaker still, the other had begun to grow stronger. When the tides of the night began to ebb and the tide of the day began to flow, at last the sun shot up into the air. Nycteris gave a cry of pain and hid her face in her hands. Oh me! The terrible light stings so! But the same instant she felt herself caught up. She, who all night long had tended and protected Photogen like a child, was now in his arms, borne along with her head lying on his shoulder. Photogen and Nycteris drew near the edge of the forest, Photogen still carrying Nycteris, when she moved a little on his shoulder uneasily and murmured in his ear, I smell a wild beast. That way, the way the wind is coming. Photogen turned back towards the castle and saw a dark speck on the plain, coming across the grass with the speed of the wind. It came nearer and nearer. He set Nycteris down under a tree, strung his bow, and picked out his heaviest, longest, sharpest arrow. Just as he set the notch on the string, he saw that the creature was a tremendous wolf rushing straight at him. He loosened his knife in its sheath, drew another arrow halfway from the quiver, lest the first should fail, and took his aim at a good distance to leave time for a second chance. He shot. The arrow rose, flew straight, descended, struck the beast, 
and started again into the air, doubled like a letter V. Quickly, Votogen snatched the other, shot, cast his bow from him, and drew his knife. But the arrow was in the brute's chest, up to the feather. It tumbled heels overhead with a great thud of its back on the earth and lay stretched out, motionless. I've killed it! Nycteris, it is a great red wolf! <sighs> I-, I was not a bit afraid. <laughs> Photogen went up to the wolf. Could he believe his eyes? There lay no wolf but Watho, with her long red hair tied around her waist. He ran back to Nycteris and told her. She shuddered and wept and would not look. And with this, we are near the end of the tale. Nothing remains but to say that Nycteris and Photogen, each carrying the other through the hours that, for one or the other, were most difficult, went at last to the king of all the land and told him of the story of their upbringing. And in time, the day boy and the night girl were married. The king gave them Watho's castle and lands, and there they lived and taught each other for many years. But hardly had one year passed before Nycteris had come to love the day best, because it was the clothing and crown of Photogen. And Photogen had come to love the night best, because it was the mother and home of Nycteris. But who knows? Nycteris would say to Photogen. That at the end of it all, when we finally go out, shall we not go into a day as much greater than your day as your day is greater than my night? The Day Boy and the Night Girl, a story written in 1882 by George MacDonald. You heard it performed by Noah Kershisnik as Photogen, Ellie Mellon as Nycteris, with Darcy Ramirez and Freya Jorgensen narrating. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of The Appleseed Today, featuring stories about people who are different from each other, but who nevertheless need each other. If the stories we've shared today spark memories or thoughts for you that you can share with the people you love, well, that's the idea. Open your mouth and share stories from your own life about experiences you've had with people who are different from you, but who you wind up needing and who wind up needing you, too. You can find The Appleseed at byuradio.org by subscribing to the podcast or try the BYU Radio app for ways to listen to all the shows produced by BYU Radio. The Appleseed is proud and happy to be part of that family of programs. And if you found us on the podcast, feel free to rate us and leave us a review. That helps people find the show. And, of course, we love to hear from you. Thank you, thank you to the listener who reviewed us on Apple Podcasts and said The Appleseed with Sam and his plethora of co-hosts delves into the recesses of our imagination. And this podcast is my go-to place when I start my day. Thank you for all the BYU programs available. And of course, it's our pleasure. Thank you so much for that review. And you're welcome. We'll keep doing it. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Appleseed.